Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions Podcast. Hey, I hope you're well. We've been plugging away at season six of Undeceptions and it's almost ready. So ready, in fact, that we'll be dropping our first episode next week, 21 March. I can't wait for you to listen to what we've got coming. In the meantime, uh, I popped down to Melbourne recently to chat with Aussie journalist and author Greg Sheridan. Greg is one of the most influential foreign affairs analysts in Australian journalism, but his latest book is more my style. It's called Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. And I speak to him for this Undeception single about why the person of Jesus is still compelling for our world today. So, Greg, I mean, one thing lots of people ask is, where did Greg Sheridan, the public Christian, come from? He was just that long-term foreign editor, you know, writing over-long essays on (laughs) China and whatever. Um, And then all of a sudden you came out, not exactly swinging, but pretty close, on behalf of the Christian faith. So I've just got to ask, what happened? Did you have an epiphany? Did you just get sick of secularism? Uh, well, John, um, hard question to answer, really. Honestly, very hard question to answer. I certainly cannot claim the slightest, remotest scintilla of virtue for myself here. Um, more like, you know, you're about to meet your maker and you think, oops, lot to lot to make up for there. But, you know, the, the plain truth is I've, 
all my life I've been a believing Christian, mm. had a lot of trouble uh, living out Christianity, uh, living up to its ethical norms and so on. I'm, for goodness sake, I've been a journalist for 43 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. uh, no more need be said. Um, I saw the culture getting more anti-Christian. I'd never in the public square denied my Christianity, but I used to take it more as a bit of a, a bit of fun, a bit of tribalism, you know. Um, I think uh, people just interpret it as, oh, Greg's sort of centre-right. Yeah, yeah. And certainly. so that just goes with the territory, you know, saying you're Christian. And we all just thought, oh, yeah, he's just saying he's Christian. But well, no, you... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I always, actually believe this stuff. I, I did always believe it. Mm. I haven't had an epiphany in terms of belief. I, I mean, I always believed Christianity and, and struggled in my life to live it, but always, uh, always believed it was true. I think one or two of us have had a struggle with living Christianity. <laughs> and uh, I think, so I saw the culture becoming more hostile mm. and I thought, well, you know, it's a bit, if you see your friends under attack, it's a, it's a bit pathetic not to, not to assist them. Also, you know, journalism has its, its grubby side, but it also has its high side. The high side is a search for the truth and a search for a great story. Now, it took me 40 years to work out what the great story was, but you know, you get there eventually, even a blind pig discovers an acorn occasionally. I'd always would say, I, not comparing myself in any way with Tony Blair, but Tony Blair once said he always found religion more interesting than politics. Hmm. And I know what he means. Politics was his profession and it absorbed him professionally. His religious faith is the basis of his life and so forth. And um, I also realized that not only was the culture becoming hostile to Christianity, but that a lot of basic knowledge of Christianity has kind of slipped away. And um, the hostility was not matched with great arguments. Exactly. So I thought, well, there's also a bit of a case just to restate mm. what Christianity consists of. Mm. And I was very, very shy about coming out initially. I wrote a memoir three books ago when we were young and foolish, and I disclosed a little bit of uh, Christian experience and belief there. I had done it once or twice in other books. I'd said, well, so, OK, I'm a, I'm a believing Christian, so shoot me bad luck. But it had never been more than a line. Mm. In When We Were Young and Foolish, I disclosed a bit more about it, and I was bracing for attack. No attack came. Mm. And then um, and then finally I thought, you know, uh, it would be good to to state again what Christians believe and why it's compelling and so on. And so that was the, the genesis of um, God is good for you. And then somebody challenged me about the lack of the living, breathing Jesus in God is good for you. Very dangerous to challenge an, an addicted author because... Let alone an Irishman. Let alone an Irishman. <laughs> And, uh, and there it is. And once I came yeah. out, I, fact, I found that really I've had very, very little hostility about it. And uh, some of the, all brands of Christians have been very kind to me, offered me hospitality, friendship, support, solidarity, encouragement, but also lots and lots and lots of non-Christians. Religious people who have other beliefs other than Christianity, but also lots and lots of atheists. I mean, apart from your good self, John, I'd say, you know, the, the best discussion I have on the two books is with Richard Glover on mm. the ABC. Yeah, Richard is a conscientious atheist. He's a and fabulous interviewer too, isn't he? Yeah, and he's a great guy. He's a terrific <clears throat> yeah. guy. And he, he read the books, you know, with a great spirit, sort mm. of, okay, what's this all about? That's interesting, yeah. you know. And mm. uh, so really it's been fun. Lots of Christians around the world, wherever I go, have the perception that the mainstream media just is anti-Christian. Okay, so you've been inside that mainstream media for 40 years. Um, what do you reckon? 
Well, I think it's that's broadly true, but it, it's, a as you'd expect, uh, let me sound like an academic, it's a complex and nuanced uh, situation. Um, the, the media, I don't think, creates culture, really. I think it amplifies mm. cultural trends. Uh, and so it is reflecting uh, a new, uh, pretty intolerant secularism and illiberal liberalism yeah. that is abroad. Uh, there are a lot more Christians in the media than you'd think. A lot of them are shy, yeah. and partly that's the old Australian secularism. You know, we didn't want Catholics and Protestants arguing with each other all the time, so mm. we decided to talk about the football instead. And partly it's because the environment is hostile, and partly there's a certain modesty, which journalists, oddly enough, share with politicians, Christian journalists and Christian politicians, very aware of their own failings, and so they don't want to put themselves forward uh, as Christian. One of the joys of uh, coming out, so to speak, is the number of people who come up to you and whisper quietly in the corner, Psst, guess what, I'm really a Lutheran too. But you know. Give you the Freemason handshake. And, um, Christians um, are on the nose. Uh, it's safe to say here in Australia, increasingly in the US, a lot of my listeners in the US have, you know, can hardly believe what's been happening in the last, say, five years, mm. how controversial and on the nose Christians are. And then you went and called your book Christians. <laughs> now, is this good old-fashioned Irish blood belligerence, or was there a strategy? Uh, it'd, be over, it'd be overstating things to say there was a strategy. My publisher helped me a lot with, uh, with the title of both books. Um, I did, however, want to be absolutely clear. I didn't want to be sort of clever. You know, 40 yeah. years of being involved in writing and, and, and uh, being part of newspaper headlines. A newspaper headline which is too clever doesn't tell the reader what it, what the what the story is about. So one headline I one title I thought about for God is good for you at one point was the ragged edge of the ragged edge of truth or something. And the publisher said to me, "That's great, Greg. After you've read the book, that's an interesting poetic title. Yes. It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell the. And and I thought you're absolutely right. The other thing, even is, your subtitle wasn't subtle for this one. A- absolutely, the urgent case for Jesus. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> the the. Uh, the publisher had suggested something like the case for Christianity in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, well, look, having spent a year or two in the New Testament, which I did for this book, uh, I mean, as well as doing my normal job and so on, but I, I was overwhelmed with the urgency and the immediacy of the message in the Gospels. Mm. And then I was thinking whether to use the name of Jesus. I mean, a certain sense of respect about not using the name, but on the other hand, it's much more powerful and oddly enough, John, I don't claim any divine warrant for this, and nothing like this, but I, I open the Bible. I don't open the Bible randomly looking for guidance. That's, it's not a custom of mine. I know a lot of other people do. It's not a bad thing. But I did open the Bible randomly while I was thinking about the title. And I came upon the passage that says, if you are ashamed of my name, my father will be ashamed of your name. I thought, okay, all right. I, get, I got the message there. That's, uh, and uh, I think... Um, you know, there was a, the late Owen Harries uh, was an academic and a political philosopher, a great foreign affairs expert. He, said, he always used to say, if you're going to make an argument, you've got to address your opponent's argument at its strongest point. Yeah. You can't try to dodge your opponent at its strongest point. And I think the corollary of that is you need to be most explicit about the core of your own uh, argument. <laughs> I want to just sort of walk through the first six chapters, the sort of meaty content chapters. 
And you don't exactly start softly, the first chapter, the death of Jesus. Well, that's right. I think the crucifixion, which is so graphic and immediate in the Gospels. I mean, people, people should read the Gospels as, as a book, as, as, as I tried to as a journalist. I, I actually think the crucifixion is the most radical claim of Christianity. Other religious traditions have gods interacting with human beings and gods being immortal. No other religious sensibility that I'm aware of has the all-powerful God suffering death and humiliation and defeat by his enemies and the death of a slave and so on. I think it is the most radical and the most graphic thing in the entire Christian tradition. And then the next chapter, you know, you throw out all journalistic credibility by claiming that Jesus is history. <laughs> Absolutely. Greatly influenced by your writings, I might say. Oh, but uh, <laughs> I read a dozen books of biblical scholarship, mm. you know, uh, sort of N.T. Wright's books and Richard Borkham's books and um, uh, John Barton, who wrote the history of the, mm -hmm. uh, the Bible and so on. So just an amateur's excursion into it, but a typical journalist uh, excursion. I spoke to the experts. I read the Bible itself. I read a dozen books of biblical scholarship. And then I, th I wanted to assert uh, a couple of things. Biblical scholarship has its limitations. It's tremendously useful, but it has its limitations. And things that are reasonable speculations are not, are not proven truths. Uh, secondly, as a journalist, I always favour the sources closest to the story. So I'm much more likely to be influenced by what people who knew the apostles thought than I am by German biblical scholars, you know, in the 18th, 1800 years later. Mm. And uh, when you look into the whole scholarship and so on, there is a more than respectable case for arguing. In fact, I think there's a compelling case that the Gospels were written about the time we thought they were written. They were written either by eyewitnesses or people who spoke to eyewitnesses. Everything we can test in them historically turns out to be true. There's a lot of evidence for this. And modern people have been brought up on the idea that the Gospels are all uh, mythology or lies or something. So I thought, well, it might be useful, and you could also do it with a bit of fun, to, to demonstrate that this argument is, I think, compelling, but at least reasonable. And then you, in the third chapter, go into the Gospel of John, which is normally regarded as, you know, the one that's not historical. <laughs> Why the Gospel of John? Well, I was um, a bit influenced by Richard Borkham's uh, book on the Gospel of John, and, and also by Pope Benedict's uh, writing about the Gospel of John. But also just you read the Gospel of John, it's just so powerful. Incredible. Mm -hmm. John's tone of voice in his letters and his Gospel, he's one of those people, he's like you meet sometimes in adult converts to Christianity. He's never lost the wonder mm -hmm. of the sense of Jesus. Just right. what an extraordinary, overwhelming experience this was. And of course, um, Kanishka Raphael, who became the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, he wasn't that when I interviewed him, he was converted to Christianity by reading the Gospel of John. He's a very, very smart guy. And um, so it, it's a lot of people have said to me, where do I start in the Bible? What's interesting to read and so on? And I thought, gosh, no human life should be deprived of reading the Gospel of John at one stage. Okay, chapter four. Are you, are you trying to convert me to Roman Catholicism? You've got a you've got a chapter on Mary. Well, you know, John, I tried very hard to write from the point of view of mere Christianity, and uh, that is to say, anyone who can assert the Apostles' Creed. And I tried to get the things we we all believe in common. 
So there was a case for not writing about Mary because Mary is an issue that sometimes divides Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox. And then I thought again, this would be grotesque cowardice. I mean, I myself, full disclosure, since the age of about eight or nine, I would say I've asked Mary for her intervention with her son every single day of my life. Mm. Now, if, if I'm not willing to talk about Mary, that's pathetic. But also, all Christian traditions do honour Mary in different ways. So I try to thread through the, the differences without taking a position. I, I mean, my example here is... Well, it's is, not a Catholic Mary that comes through in that chapter. Yeah, well, my, my, um, my example here is C.S. Lewis, who mm. in Mere Christianity writes something like, I have the views of a, a regular Anglican, but that's not what I'm doing in this book. I'm just telling you about mm. what we all believe together in Christianity. But Mary emerges, of course, in the Gospels, as just such a fantastic human figure. I mean, the Magnificat is the best speech in the New Testament given by anyone other than Jesus. You know, it, it's an extraordinary speech. Her self-confidence, her agency. And I think both Catholics who've been over-devoted to Mary and some others who maybe have tended to downplay Mary too much sort of miss the vibrancy and the agency and the compelling, you know, the, the human episodes. I love it where they lose, Mary and Joseph lose Jesus in the temple and she comes back and says, what have you been doing to your father and me? As of, you know, my sons come from my wife's first marriage, but they're absolutely my sons. The example of Joseph as a father who's not biologically related to his, to his, to his son. Of course, Jesus' father is the father in heaven, but she doesn't say, what have you been doing to your earthly carer, foster significant other and me? She says, what have you been doing to your father and me? Mm. So she gives Joseph this magnificent status and then, of course, the other episodes, you know, a, a, a twin pillar of suffering standing at the cross bravely uh, with Jesus. Uh, there's only one man there, John. There's several women, as usual. The women are braver than the men. And that's true all the way through the gospel. And the historical figure of Mary is so compelling. Mm. I thought she was worth examining. And in some ways, for, for people who are nervous about misogynistic, patriarchal Christianity... Mary's a great way in. I think so. To and the love of her son, Jesus. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And um, there, there are a number of women in the, in the... I mean, it is worth noting, isn't it? This is, I'm not making a profound theological point, but the first person who knows of Jesus in the, in the gospel is a woman. First person who proclaims Jesus is a woman. The people standing at the cross are predominantly women. Mm. And when Jesus rises from the dead, the first person he chooses to reveal himself to is a woman. I, I'm not making a profound theological point, but it strikes me as an it interesting. Is striking. Yeah. Okay, fifth chapter. I imagine some people thought, is Greg medieval here? <laughs> Angels. Angels. Sure, that's that's a bit of that's a bit of the Christian faith we try to hide, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, John, I believe that the Christian faith absolutely demands concern for social justice, a concern for the poor. I don't think you can be a Christian and not be concerned for the poor. But the Christian faith also, uh, at its heart, that proceeds from its uh, supernatural, divine claims. And uh, angels are all the way through the Bible. They're there in the book of Genesis and they're there right at the end of the book of Revelation. They're there at the beginning of the New Testament. 
Now, if you take out angels and miracles from, from your Bible, I don't know, you probably take out 30% of the Bible or something. Now, if 30% of it is all lies, I'm not interested in it. I'd rather be at the beach. You know, if it's all lies, I, I, I have no interest in it. And of course, when you think about it, a tradition of angels is very widespread across human consciousness. Hinduism, lots of other religious traditions has something like angels. Christianity never taught that the spirit world doesn't exist. It taught that the spirit world is under the dominion of God. And uh, there's a long theology of angels, wonderful book on angels by Billy Graham. Um, Luther and all the reformers had interesting things to say about angels. And the particular Christian tradition, again, without being denominational, that some Christians hold, which we is that we have a guardian angel. Well, you know, I don't know about you, John, but I need all the help I can get. If I've got another, if there's someone else giving me a hand, that's great by me. And then finally, um, perhaps the least liked leader in the New Testament is Paul. So you jumped straight in and gave us a chapter on Paul. What are you trying to achieve there? Paul is a terrific figure of history. So, um, uh, you know, Larry Siddentop claims that Paul turned the world upside down, the great Oxford historian, as many people have. Many people wrongly claim that Paul was a founder of Christianity. That's not true. He was a follower of Jesus Christ, but he was a follower of genius. Controversially, I title this chapter, Paul Christ Lenin. And of course, there's no moral equivalence. Lenin was a murderous, totalitarian tyrant. But Lenin had some of the same qualities as Paul, profound theoretical understanding of what he believed in. So Paul understood the theology of Jesus very deeply and also an organizational genius. But again, reading the Gospels and the epistles uh, as a journalist, as a story, first of all, uh, the, the wonderful humanity of Paul comes through. So Paul is generous and loving and teaching and profound and everything. He's also irascible and bad tempered and cross-grained, you know, I fell in love with the book of, the, of Galatians. He starts Galatians being meek and mild as accepting the authority of Peter and James and John. Then he immediately has a furious disagreement with them and says, I told Cephas his name for Peter. I sorted him out. Then he's annoyed with people misleading the Galatians. And he says, I wish they'd all go and castrate themselves. Obviously, sarcastic, metaphorical, humorous, but the humor comes to us across 2000 years. And uh, then his magnificent statement of Christian universalism, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. And of course, he has to concern himself with mundane things like fundraising. You know, we've got to get some money for the church in Jerusalem. I mean, the early Christians didn't leave just by diaphanous vision. They lived messy, difficult lives. They didn't start out with the Vatican treasures. No, uh, no. And, and their, their relationship to Jesus didn't make life's messiness mm. and difficulty go away. Mm. It just gave them a way of, um, of coping with it. And I think Paul is one of the most significant figures in human history, but also one of the most, um, one of the most fully uh, explored figures that we have in, in the scriptures. And the final point I make about Paul is, he's a very sympathetic figure for a modern person. Paul, in a sense, is the first modern Christian. He's a He's a cosmopolitan city intellectual, but also he was not there like the other apostles with Jesus when Jesus was conducting his mission. So his relationship with Jesus is an example to all Christians of the depth and intensity of the relationship they can have. So there's one of his many beautiful passages is uh, Jesus Christ uh, loved me and poured out his life for me and I live 
insofar as I live, I live in, in mm. Christ, something like that. Mm. And um, this is not, so in a sense, John and James and Peter and so on, they, they had a special advantage over us. They met yep. Jesus in the flesh, you know. Paul didn't have that advantage. Mm. So he's a very um, easy character, I think, for modern, for modern people to relate to. Imagine you're at a, you know, a, a dinner party, there's a bunch of skeptical people there, Christianity comes up and someone, someone says to you, Christianity is yesterday's story. You know, it's got no relevance in the modern world. What, what's the sort of thing, if, you know, if you're in a courageous spirit and you've had half a glass <laughs> of penfolds, um, what's the sort of thing you might say? Well, I would say that I believe Christianity is true and that I believe every human being needs the mercy of God and that when we're feeling good about ourselves, you know, when we're in good health, we've got some money and our romantic life is going okay, we can suffer from the illusion that we don't need God's mercy and that we don't need God's solidarity. And Christianity, uh, one way of describing it, it, it is the principle of God's solidarity with human beings. And that is the principle of human solidarity with each other. But look, of course, Christians have done lots of bad things, as you detail in your splendid book. But, you know, I think, I think once when Mother Therese was being attacked, I felt like saying to the person attacking her, so, okay, how many homeless, diseased, sick, wretched, desperate people on the streets of Calcutta have you comforted? Have you um, taken into a, to a shelter or a home and given a meal to? So the second half of the book has a number of people who are impelled by their love of Christ to a very active love of other human beings. Um, and the final thing I'd say to people is, you know, uh, don't write it off and, and Jesus is always there waiting for you, you know, if you change your mind or, or here's a little challenge. I've got a little 160 page package of the New Testament just, just for the sake of cultural literacy. Read these 160 pages and if they say nothing to you, that's fine. You know more about it. But on the other hand, it's dangerous to read those 160 pages because you never know where it's going to end. Greg Sheridan, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, John. Great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. You can find links to Greg's book and a bit more about him in the show notes. Oh, and if you get a moment, please check out our listener survey. Tons of you have already completed it. And it really is going to help us get to know you and what you'd like to hear more or less of in this show. Plus, you'll get a chance to go into the draw to win a book pack with the latest books of some of our exciting guests for season six. A link to the listener survey is also in the show notes. Thanks so much. Catch you next week as we begin the sixth season of Undeceptions. And we're starting with one of the most influential Christians who ever lived. So influential that some reckon he wasn't even a Christian. I'm talking about Constantine the Great. See ya.
Undeceptions podcast.